Good morning. If you have a Bible, uh, we're going to end up in Genesis 15, but if you actually want to just open up to Genesis chapter 1, or if you're on your phone, you can sort of swipe your way forward with us. Uh, there, are some, there are some moments, I think, in the book of Genesis where it's helpful to do a little bit of recap. Uh, why is the moment that we're looking at significant, or how does it sort of advance what's happening in the book of Genesis? And we're going to, like I said, end up in Genesis 15, but I think this is a spot where it's helpful to make sure that as we work our way through Genesis 15, which is a pretty pivotal moment in the book, we've got Genesis 1 through 14 in mind. So I'm, I'm just going to sort of work my way forward from Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God, who is eternally pre-existent, creates everything by the power of his spoken word. Now, he creates everything that is not him, right? Because he's eternally pre-existent. So he doesn't have to speak himself into existence and then everything after him. He's there, he speaks, and everything comes into being. And his creating work culminates, the end of Genesis chapter 1, the beginning of Genesis 2, with humanity. Humanity who is made in his image, which means his unique affection is set upon humanity in a way that's different than the rest of his creation. Humanity who is then charged with partnering with him and ruling and reigning his creation. And the purpose of that creation and the purpose of humanity is to just sort of humbly, joyfully, willingly rely upon God, enjoy his grace and his mercy while making his greatness and his glory known in the universe that he has created. God sustains and he guides all of that toward his desired outcomes. He's intervening within the affairs of creation. He's present within his creation. He's moving everything toward the fulfillment of his plans and his purposes. And then we get to Genesis chapter three. In Genesis chapter three, Adam and Eve eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's an act of rejecting God's lordship and his, his command to not eat from that tree. It's, it's also an act that's rooted in wanting to rival God in his unique glory, like we could be like him if we ate from this tree. So sin enters into the, into the world and all of humanity and creation though intentionally and wonderfully made, is now broken and marred by the destructive presence of sin. And then from Genesis 4 through Genesis chapter 11, you see the sort of disintegrating effects of sin within the world and the sort of like general prehistory of humanity. And so Genesis chapter 4, Cain murders Abel. The end of Genesis chapter 4, you've got one of Cain's descendants like sort of bragging about how trivial a matter he could kill another person over. You get the line of Seth's family in Genesis 5 and Genesis chapter 6 begins what is the flood account where God's just though patient judgment for humanity or for humanity's sin is seen on sort of its largest early scale in the flood. So Genesis 6, 7, 8, 9 all takes place within that account. Genesis 10, you see the sort of spreading out of the early nations of people. Genesis chapter 11 then is the Tower of Babel. God again judges and, and confuses language, scatters people once again so that they won't do what? Try to rival God, make a name for themselves, build a tower so that everyone will know who they are. And despite the sort of growing presence and reality of sin... Genesis 
chapters 4 through 11. What hangs over the entire early part of the biblical story is a promise that God made in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, that there would come a sea woman, Eve, who would eventually crush the head of the serpent while the serpent wounded his heel. So he will destroy the one who brought sin into the world, but it will come at the cost of his own pain and his own suffering. And that like hangs over the entire thing. When will that seed of the woman arrive and put an end to sin? I'm gonna read, it's, it's sort of a lengthy quote, comes from a theologian, his name is John Frame. But he asks and then answers the question, why doesn't that child come in like Genesis 4 or 5 or 6 or 10 or 11? Or why isn't Genesis 12 where we meet Abram? Why is that not just the introduction of the child of promise? He says this, God could have remedied the fall in an instant, sending his son in an accelerated time frame, bringing him to death, resurrection, ascension, and triumphal return in a matter of seconds. Or he might have accomplished this work in a matter of decades, allowing for a somewhat more normal kind of historical development. But instead, he determined a process spread over millennia. He spent centuries narrowing the messianic line to a chosen family, bringing them into the land of promise, ordaining the birth of the son in the fullness of time, accomplishing redemption in 33 more years, and sending his disciples on a journey of several thousand years, at least, to bring the good news to all the nations. Why he chose to stretch out the drama of salvation over so long a time is a mystery. But God's decision is clear, that the history of redemption will take millennia, leaving space for dramatic movements, ups and downs, twists and turns, longings and astonishments. Salvation is to be a great epic, not a short story. God will glorify himself, not by measuring his kingdom in time spans appropriate to human, human kings, but by revealing himself as the king of the ages. So in Genesis chapter 12, first three verses there, you get introduced to a man named Abram. But Abram is not the one who's going to crush the head of the serpent. It's with this man who we're told later by uh, the book of Joshua was living in Ur of the Chaldeans and worshiping other gods. We're told that he was a pagan. It's that man that God chooses to enter into a covenant with. And the covenant will then eventually produce the child of promise. So God calls Abram to leave his, go out from his land, leave his family and his relatives, go to a place that God will show him, and to be a blessing to the nations. In turn, God will bless Abram, make him into a great nation, give him and his descendants land, show kindness to those who are kind to him, and curse those who treat him with contempt. But the difficulty with all of that is that Abram's wife Sarai, we're told, can't conceive. So how can there be this child of promise if the family that you're going to do this through doesn't appear to be able to have children? And then the end of Genesis 12, all of Genesis 13, all of Genesis 14, are this sort of like early covenant history where Abram is learning what it means to walk in light of the promises that God has made to him. And so he goes to Egypt and he tries to sort of make God's promises happen for himself, takes it upon himself to do God's half of the covenant promise and that doesn't go well. God has to intervene. 
He returns to Canaan. And there he rejects this temptation to sort of grasp after making God's promises happen for himself. And he allows Lot to select which land will be his. And then God reaffirms. Like, Lot went that way. Abram, you go this way. All the land that you can see, that will be yours. Walk back and forth through it. If you could count the dust on the ground, so will your descendants be. Then... Sometime after that, we're not entirely sure when, Genesis chapter 14, Lot gets taken sort of prisoner in the midst of a military engagement, and then Abram has to go save his nephew from that thorny situation. And on his way back home, he spurns the king of Sodom's offer to all the spoils of war because Abram would rather God make him rich, according to the promises that God made, than the king of Sodom make him rich. So at the end of Abram's life, the king of Sodom could not say, it was me that blessed this man, Abram. And all of that brings us to Genesis chapter 15. God's already made these promises to Abram, and in today's passage, he's going to establish those covenant promises. He's going to confirm them again to Abram. And in doing so, what we end up having here is God laying a foundation in a pattern for how his New Testament covenant works. In fact, it's this passage that both Paul, two times, and James, one time, in the New Testament, are going to pick up and say, this is the way that God has always interacted with his people, by his grace, for their good. This is paramount. So paramount, in fact, that three New Testament epistles say, see, this is how God works with his people. And so where we're going to land today is that the fixed point of our righteousness is only ever God's grace to us in Jesus. If you've got Genesis 15 open there in front of you, we're going to read the whole thing. It's 21 verses long. It says this, after these events, that would be what happened in the military engagement, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward will be very great. But Abram said, Lord God, what can you give me since I am childless? And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Abram continued, look, you have given me no offspring, so a slave born in my house will be my heir. Now the word of the Lord came to him, this one will not be your heir. Instead, one who comes from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside and said, look at the stars. Or look at the sky and count the stars if you are able to count them. Then he said to him, your offspring will be that numerous. Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. He also said to him, I'm the Lord who brought you from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, Lord God, how can I know that I will possess it? He said to him, bring me a three-year-old cow, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. So he brought all these to him, cut them in half, and laid the pieces opposite each other. But he did not cut the birds in half. Birds of prey came down on the carcass, but Abram drove them away. As the sun was setting, a deep sleep came over Abram, and suddenly great terror and darkness descended on him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know this for certain. Your offspring will be resident aliens for 400 years in a land that does not belong to them, and they will be enslaved and oppressed. However, I will judge the nation they serve. And afterward, they will go out with many possessions. 
but you will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, they will return here, for the iniquity of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. When the sun had set and it was dark, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch appeared and passed between the divided animals. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, I give this land to your offspring. From the brook of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates River, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadamites, the Hethites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, and Jebusites. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, I pray this morning that you would show us why it is that an account that's thousands of years old could be of such incredible importance to followers of Jesus today. God, would you confront us graciously this morning if we're seeking to put our righteousness someplace other than Jesus? Would you confirm to us or remind us graciously God, if we need to be reassured that Jesus is a fixed point and our righteousness is found in him. God, speak to us through your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Two sections in Genesis chapter 15. Verse 6 is the midpoint. So, Verses 1 through 5, something happens. Then there's verse 6. And then verses 7 through 21, something happens. In the first half, God is confirming a promise to Abram that he will have an heir, a child. In the second portion, God is confirming a promise to Abram that he will have land. And in both sections, there are very similar elements. God introduces himself. Abram asks a question, and then God answers that question with a confirmation or an affirmation of his promise. And so we'll just work with both sides of that. The first piece is this confirmation of an heir. God introduces himself. Don't be afraid, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward will be very great. Now on the surface, that seems like an odd introduction. What does Abram have to be afraid of right now? He just chased down a, a nation and a king and a military much bigger than him and came back with all the spoils of war, turned that down, said, you know what, I don't actually want it, and now he appears to be living totally free. Like, wh- why would God introduce himself with, don't be afraid, I am your shield, your reward will be very, very great? Well, keep in mind what Melchizedek just reminded him and us about God won Lot's victory. I am your shield. Then, our Abram's victory. Then Abram turned down all of the spoils of war. Your will be great. Presumably greater than all of the stuff you just walked away from. I'm your shield. I won you that victory. Your reward will be great. Think about all the stuff you just turned down. Your blessing will be greater than that. And so then Abram answers with a question. What is the reward on Abram's mind? What can you give me since I am childless? Keep the Genesis 3.15 promise in mind. Like This is the family that the 
seed of the woman is ultimately going to come from, but Abram can have no children. So I, I hear you, Lord. You're my shield, my protection. Our reward will be very great. But the primary reward that we're thinking of is the child, and that is not possible. You've not given us a child yet. And in fact, all of my stuff, the heir of my household right now, is Eliezer of Damascus, who's a servant within his household. God responds. Verse four, this one will not be your heir. Instead, one who comes from your own body. And then he takes Abram, has Abram go outside, and the confirmation of that promise is, Abram, look at the stars. If you could count them, that's how numerous your offspring will be. So he's had two of those sort of visual confirmations now about the size of his household. One was if you could count the dust in the promised land, that's how numerous your offspring will be. Now it's if you could count the stars in the universe, that's how numerous your offspring will be. Second piece, if you jump down to verse seven, the Lord introduces himself again. I am the Lord who brought you from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. That's the introduction. The construction of that is something that the Old Testament is going to go back to over and over and over again. I am the Lord who brought you, but typically in the Old Testament, that's going to be out of Egypt. The Exodus event. Here, God references Abram's sort of Exodus event. You left a place to go where I would lead you. I'm the Lord who brought you out of that place. And over and over again in the Old Testament, God's going to introduce himself that way. I am the Lord who brought you from Ur of the Chaldeans here, from Egypt after the Exodus. Twice now, in both introductions, God has given Abram like this sort of reassuring presence or reality of who he is. I'm your shield. I'm your leader or guide. I'm the one who brought you out of that place. I'm the one who rescued you and, and gave you victory. I'm your shield and protection. Your reward will be great. There's this like gracious sort of reminder of God's goodness to Abram. And then Abram asks a question. Well, how can I know that you will give me land to possess? And then God provides confirmation. And so from verse 9 all the way through the end of the chapter, there's this sort of like ceremony that takes place uh, in a vision. And there's been a lot of scholarly research done on exactly what's happening inside of this ceremony. Like what do all the things represent and what, what are all the pieces of this ceremony? The gist of it is this. God displays the certainty of his promises by taking part in what was traditionally a ceremony where two human parties would confirm an oath that they've made to one another. Normally, both participants in this thing are human, and both participants would pass down the middle of the severed animals. And in doing so, they would symbolize their commitment to... Uh, the oath or the promise or the covenant that they're making with one another. In this case, God is the only one who passes through and he's symbolized by the flaming torch and this burning pot. Fire is the most common Old Testament representation of God's presence. So burning pot, flaming torch, symbolizes the presence of God moving through the two pieces of these animals. And what's the point? that the obligations for the fulfillment of these promises rests not on both parties, on God. 
I'm going through the middle here because I am the one who is going to make all of this stuff happen for you, including the child that you don't think is possible and the land that you want certainty that you're going to possess. How will I confirm that to you? Here's a standard oath-confirming practice, and I'm the only one binding myself to it. Abram is not. That's the gist of what happens there at the end of Genesis chapter 15. What's, what's kind of all of this like taken together? What do we see? God assures Abram with the reality of his gracious character and confirmation of these seemingly bold promises that God's making. Despite the uncertainty of your circumstances, Abram, you can count on my character and you can count on the fact that I've just bound myself in an oath to you. These things will take place. These will happen. And God provides visual confirmation for both, the stars in the sky and the vision of this ceremony. Take a step back really quick while we're working through this. Oftentimes we talk about faith and like what does, what, is, what does it mean to have faith? What does it look like to have faith? How do we approach life with faith? I think one of the things that this back and forth provides us, this conversation between Abram and God, like Abram's asking questions. How can I know? How can that be since you've not given me a child? Faith faces harsh facts of life with the boundless facts of God. It isn't that in his faith, Abram refuses to, the, to acknowledge the reality of his life. We can't have kids, God. How can I know you're gonna give us this land, God? It's that in his faith, Abram is committed to meeting the reality of life with the even greater reality of God. The situation doesn't look good, but you are bigger and you are greater than these circumstances. So help me believe. This is like an Old Testament narrative version of the New Testament figure who says to Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. How is it that we're going to have an heir? You haven't given us one yet. How can I know you're going to give us this land? I believe you, help me believe you. I have faith but the circumstances look a little difficult to overcome right now. Faith isn't a refusal to deal honestly with what's happening around us. Faith is our acceptance of the fact that God is bigger and truer and grander and deeper than all of the facts of our circumstances. Faith is not, I'll just ignore reality. Faith is, I see reality, but I understand that God is greater than that. That's what faith is. Is. And so some, some quick Genesis examples of that, a positive and a negative one. A positive one, Noah. God's telling Noah to build a boat, it's going to rain. And Noah's got to be thinking to himself, I don't completely understand what God's saying, but I'll build this giant boat anyway. That's facing the facts of things, but understanding that God is bigger than the reality of that situation. The negative example would be Adam and Eve. The fruit from this tree looks good. That's a fact. It's desirable for obtaining wisdom. It looks like it's good to eat. So to meet that with faith would be to say, but God told us not to eat it, and we can trust that he has a reason for that. The sort of 
examples in our own life, if we just went directly out of Adam and Eve, we see the temptations of sin and we say, that looks like a good thing. Everyone around me in the world would confirm that that is a good thing. But then we meet that with a bigger reality of God. God has said that that's not a good thing. He must have something better. I will trust him. That's faith. Like, this looks great. All the reality around me says that that would be a good thing, but God has said that it's not, and to put faith in him would be to say that he must be greater than that thing. And so I choose to believe him rather than what my flesh says or what the world says or what temptation says. That's faith facing the facts of life with the boundless fact and reality of who God is. Abram's questions aren't a negation of his belief. They're the genuine wrestling of a person who's trying to meet the facts of his life circumstances with the greater fact of who God is and his presence. Uh, That slide's coming in a bit. So where all of that about faith and Abram, where do we actually draw that from? Well, we get that from verse six, which is the sort of midpoint in the chapter. Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. That's God credited it to Abram as righteousness. That's the enduring statement out of Genesis chapter 15 that gets picked up in the New Testament. And so I, I try not to overburden you with Hebrew words, but the words are really important to Paul and James in the New Testament, so they should be really important to us as we work through this. Three key words here. Abram believed God. There's no reason to overthink this. Abram believed God. Like God said that he would do this and Abram believed him. He trusted God. He was assured of what God was saying. He placed his faith in what God was saying. He relied upon what God was saying. The Hebrew word there is aman. Specifically, this statement that Abram believed the Lord, it comes right on the heels of, of Abram hearing God's confirmation of the promise for a child. We've seen this in action up to this point, Abram believing God. Now we get it in verbal form. The action of his faith came before the Bible put vocabulary to it. This is why we sort of walked through the various pieces of Genesis. We're seeing Abram act in faith in Genesis 12 and 13 and 14. We didn't need scripture to tell us that Abram believed God because we could see it in the things that he was doing. And yet right here in the middle of God confirming and sort of establishing these promises for Abram, we get the verbiage for that. We've seen Abram trying to face the facts of his life with the bigger, better, boundless facts of God and his promises. It hasn't been perfect. It's not going to be perfect in the, in the future, but it is genuine. Like he's trying. Even in Egypt, when he sort of blows it, He's trying to act in accordance to God's promises. God said that we would have a child. We can't have a child if I'm dead. And so despite the fact that he ends up sinning to try to bring that promise into fruition and he goes about it the wrong way, he's at least genuine in the fact that like, I I mean, God said this, so I should try to keep myself alive. Moses comes right out now and tells us, Abram believed God. And it's in the verbiage of this verse that we get the first place in all of scripture where belief or faith and righteousness are linked together, which is a huge deal in scripture. 
particularly in the New Testament. Note that though it's not Abram believed God and his belief made him righteous. That's not what it says. There's another step in the middle. The key link is that God credits, depending on your translation, it might say counts, it might say reckons, it might say accounts. Abram righteous. So the word there in Hebrew is hasav, credited, reckoned, counted. The definition there is like a legal sort of declarative act whereby God states that something is objective reality. It's as though God were working with the facts and the figures like an accountant. That's where the word comes from. And as he's working with all the numbers and the figures, he states as a fact, two plus two is four. So like he states as a fact here, Abram is righteous. That's the declarative statement. By God's accounting here, Abram possesses something that he doesn't actually possess. That's why it's credited, reckoned. And what is it that he doesn't actually possess, but God is crediting to him? That's righteousness. The Hebrew word there is sedekah. Righteousness means, that Hebrew word means, to do what is right according to a fixed standard. He's advancing forward to Abram, righteousness. It's not something that he has. We've seen Abram sin. We know he's not totally righteous. And yet God is crediting that to him. Abram's human. And with his humanity, since Genesis 3, has come the reality of sinfulness and brokenness. He has that nature, sin, He also has that in behavior, like sins. Nonetheless, God is counting Abram as righteous even though he is not. The easiest sort of illustration here is a credit card. We we know how credit cards work. Now, assuming you're not just using the credit card and paying it off right away so that you can get the airline points, credit works as here's money you don't actually have that you can spend. Like, I'm forwarding to you something that you do not possess as though you definitively have it. That's what's happening here to Abram. He's being forwarded a righteousness that he does not actually possess as though it were completely his. The receipt of that credit, according to the fixed point of God's righteousness, happens as Abram believes God's words and promises, specifically the word and the promise of an heir. So what's the big picture here? Someday, a child of the woman, Eve, is going to come, and that child will put an end to sin so that righteousness rules. This is why we started with the big walkthrough of Genesis 1 through 14. One of the like common questions that a pastor receives is, how were people in the Old Testament saved? What does Abram believe here? That there will come a child through his family line in accordance with Genesis 3.15 who will eventually put an end to sin so that righteousness rules. How is Abram Why is Abram credited righteousness? Because he believes in that child and that God will make that child come. How are you saved? You believe in that child 
It's just that you've got a name for that child, Jesus. So your righteousness is credited to you looking backward at what Jesus did on the cross. Abram's righteousness is credited to him looking forward to what this child would do one day when he came. And if all who believe or share the faith of Abram are those who are saved, but not all Israel is Israel, right? That's what the New Testament says. How are Old Testament people saved? Looking forward to that child. Jesus. Old Testament people are saved by faith in Jesus. New Testament people are saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus. One's looking forward, one's looking backward. Abram's not that child. Nonetheless, God, in his grace, is crediting to Abram the reality of something that does not yet exist. And because of that, from this point forward in Genesis, God is going to work with all of his sovereign power to fulfill his promises to Abram and to the world while advancing this plan to end sin and to put an end to Satan. And so what we have in Abram is both an example and a pattern of God's gracious interaction with his people. God's reckoning of Abram's righteousness is an example and a pattern of his reckoning of our righteousness. That's the point that Paul and James are making when they reference this Old Testament passage in New Testament letters. Romans chapter four, Galatians chapter three, James chapter two. That's where you could find those. Abram doesn't have the law yet, so he's credited righteousness according to something else. That's Paul's point in Romans. It can't be because of his obedience. It has to be because of something else. And that something else is God's grace to him. And as children of Abraham, our righteousness is credited to us not on the basis of our moral achievement, but on the basis of God's gracious love and action toward us. The basis of this reckoning for Abram is all about grace. It's an act of God's grace that Abram is chosen for this covenant. It's an act of God's grace that these promises are made and then confirmed to him. It's an act of God's grace that despite the reality of Abram's sin, righteousness is forwarded to him. It's an act of God's grace that Abram can be certain that God will now work with all of his power and sovereignty on Abram's behalf in order to bring those promises to their certain fulfillment. And the same is true for us. This is the pattern. Brothers and sisters in Christ, this covenant with Abram is the pattern and the example for God's covenant of kindness to his people throughout all time. What we have in Jesus is the same gracious reckoning of a righteousness that we do not possess. God in Jesus makes a declarative, objective statement of fact granting us something that we don't possess. He credits to us or he reckons to us or he accounts to us a righteousness that is not ours, but that becomes ours because of the child of promise, Jesus. That is an act of God's grace received by faith. It is not faith that makes it so. It is grace that makes it so and faith that receives it. And now we can be certain that God will work with all of his power and all of his sovereignty on our behalf as he continues to bring his purposes and his plans to fulfillment. There's a method of navigation typically used in naval navigation called dead reckoning. Dead reckoning takes a known fixed point 
factors in your speed and your direction, and that equals both your current location, and then you can extrapolate it forward to a future location. Dead reckoning is, in its simplest form, when you're doing the math word problem that said, one train leaves New York City at blank miles per hour heading west. One train leaves Los Angeles at blank miles per hour headed east. Where will they meet? And you do all of that math, and you say, with a big bang somewhere near Chicago. Like, that, that is dead reckoning in its sort of simplest form. You've got two fixed points, New York and Los Angeles. You've got a speed and a direction, and you're able to extrapolate what the distance is. For the follower of Jesus, Jesus is the fixed point that allows you to determine both your current and your future position. Nothing else. On your most sinful, sin-filled, broken day, Jesus is the fixed point that establishes your righteousness. On your most holy day, where you nail everything and your motivations for everything are fantastic and you don't have any bad thoughts and you don't say any cuss words to anybody and you don't shake your fist at someone in traffic, your fixed point is still Jesus. Not your righteous behavior that day. And on the bad day, your sinful behavior is not your fixed point. It's Jesus, and you are credited righteousness on his account. That's the gospel. Problems arise when we start to think that we are the fixed point. I'm the fixed point that determines both my current and my future location. That's why Jesus' confrontations with the Pharisees are what they are in the gospels. They thought that their achieved righteousness was the fixed point. You tithe your mint and dill, but you forget the weightier things of the law. You stand off to the side and declare, thank you that I'm not like this tax collector, a sinner, because you think that your moral performance is the fixed point that makes you righteous before God, and you could not be more wrong. And so what Jesus does is he meets them head on with this gracious sort of confrontation that says, you need to figure out that that won't save you. It can't. And yet it's also that fixed point that allows Jesus to meet a woman at a well or Zacchaeus, a tax collector, or a leper with such gracious tenderness. Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house today. Zacchaeus is like, I've been stealing stuff from people my entire life. Why would you come to my house today? And then you see Jesus say, Zacchaeus, Salvation has come to this household today. Why? Because it wasn't about Zacchaeus. Jesus is the fixed point. Woman at the well, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. And that's good news. Why? Because he's the fixed point. That's the beauty of the gospel. And so the New Testament is looking at this with Abram and saying it was the exact same for the father of the faith. Not according to the law, he didn't have it yet but because he looked forward to the child of promise who would crush the head of the serpent and righteousness would reign. And now follower of Jesus, you look backward at the child of the promise who crushed the head of the serpent and righteousness reigns. And you don't look anywhere else because he's the fixed point that determines your current location in Christ and your future location with him for eternity. Amen? There's the gospel. On page 17, 
of my Bible. I don't know what page it's on for you. 15 chapters in, God lays the pattern and sets the example. This is how I deal with my people. I credit them righteousness according to the fixed point of the sun and nothing else. And so there are two options today. If you think that your achieved righteousness, your moral performance is the fixed location that will determine your present and your future location, you need gracious confrontation. And it might not be moral performance that you tie that to. You might think achieved righteousness or the fixed point that rests in you is something different. You stand up for the right causes. Your church attendance is good enough. Your voting record is the right thing. And that's what's going to make me righteous when I stand before the judge. No, you need gracious confrontation. It is Jesus and Jesus alone who is the fixed point whereby righteousness gets credited to you. That's it. Nothing else. Or you might be on the other side. Where you know that your achieved righteousness is hopeless. You could be in a situation right now in the middle of your life where you say, look, I would not want to meet Jesus at that well. If Jesus said, I'm coming to your house today, you'd be so ashamed that he'd walk into your house. What you need is gracious confirmation. Don't worry, child. It was never about you. It's only about me. Gracious confrontation, gracious confirmation. Jesus offers both in perfect measure exactly where you need them. And then by God's grace, received by your faith, you get credited the righteousness of the Son. But you've got to walk away from the thing that you think can give you righteousness. And you've also got to be willing to receive the fact that his righteousness could be good enough to cover your sin. And the fixed point of our righteousness is only ever God's grace to us in Jesus. This is why we opened the service and the first words that we sang were, in Christ alone, my hope is found, nothing else. He is your light, your strength, your song, your cornerstone, your solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought or storm. In Christ alone who took on flesh, fullness of God and helpless babe, this gift of love and righteousness scorned by the ones he came to save. And it's why we're going to close our service singing these words. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly trust in Jesus' name. Christ alone, cornerstone. He's the fixed point of your righteousness. Amen? This is the case for Abram. It's the case for you today. If you are able, let's stand. We'll pray and then enter into worship. God, thank you for your word.
Scripture tells us that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever, and your word displays to us that because your character is unchanging, so too is the way that you relate to your people. It is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and the basis of that interaction is the Son. God, would you graciously confront us when we think or if we think that our moral achievement is the fixed point that's going to make us righteous one day before you. Ah, would you confront that and just root it out of our hearts. God, would you show us the beauty of Jesus. And God, would you be gentle and gracious and confirming to us. When we think that the sin is too bad, And that Jesus couldn't possibly provide the answer for it. Oh, would you remind us that he can and that he does and that he has. God, would it be true in just every corner of who we are that our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness? We pray this in the matchless name of Jesus Christ. Amen.